Here we go, people. Let's get this party started. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three. Oh, one, two, three. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, we'll be taking a dive into Rush and their moving pictures of 1981. This was Rush's most successful album. So you picked this album. How about you uh, give us a bit of background on it from your perspective? I think that would be helpful to the listeners and myself included since you were the one who decided to unleash this one on us most definitely most definitely this is uh russ has always called out to me um on the very basis of you know musicianship uh between the three of them they have always been a uh one that's up there on my charts of of greatest musicians um this is the eighth studio album by rush um they actually we're going to record a live album um and then they hit the new york stop on their 1980 tour and said you know what we're having we're in, we're vibing so great and having so many new thoughts let's i don't necessarily know if they canceled everything because i know they did 108 um shows in 81 but uh they said let's go ahead and do another studio album um so they put it together and moving pictures is the ultimate uh, and note of of these ideas, um, only seven tracks, but seven really, really tight. I expect nothing less. They were coming into their own, and we'll speak more about that as we go through the tracks. But this is uh, this is definitely my favorite Rush album. If not, it's up there in my top ten albums of all time. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not as familiar with Rush coming into this one, and. Uh, well, you were saying what? You had heard Limelight and Tom Sawyer? Yes, because those are classic rock radio staples, of course. Everybody's heard those, or maybe not everybody, but many people have heard that. Most definitely. I mean, in this album, 5 million copies sold total. Um, Limelight and Tom Sawyer are the ones that get played constantly, even though YYZ was the one that was actually nominated for a Grammy uh, for Best Rock Instrumental Performance in 82. Um, ended up losing by a narrow margin to the police, but uh, it's it's surprising to me how much that one didn't get played until. And, and this is a little T, and and I was going to pop this in YYZ, and we might talk about it when we're at the track. But YYZ was on Guitar Hero Two, um, and if you're familiar with the Guitar Hero series, you're just like a five button following, almost like a tablature, a scrolling tablature uh, video game, and it was, I mean. 
nonstop for me. This was before Rock Band Guitar Hero. This was groundbreaking. I was actually managing a GameStop at this point, and it's pretty much all we did. Uh, but it was my first time that I saw YYZ out there in the public, and it was awesome. Wow, that's a cool story. I'm sure you have some more of these if this album is that favorable to you because it's possibly in your top 10. You Most just definitely. said, I didn't know that. So... <laughs> The background that I found on the album was that most of the songs were created at a farm in Stony Lake, Ontario. And Rush was following up their most, at the time, their most successful studio album up to that point, Permanent Waves, which had their biggest hit up to that point, The Spirit of Radio, which is my favorite Rush song, actually. I think that's an awesome song. They wanted to continue in their trend of doing tighter, more radio-friendly songs because this was a band with a lot of progressive rock influences, and they wanted to streamline their sound a bit, which I think is a smart move. Not only is it a smart move, but coming from a band that, in their own words, said that they had tried to constantly write songs that wouldn't get... um, old for them or wouldn't become uh, repetitive because they were so intricate and so challenging to play. Um, It was a neat looking inside themselves, uh, in my opinion, when they were moving forward, trying to make, I don't know if they were necessarily trying to make, but they were definitely focusing on making a tighter uh, radio friendly album. Yes. And Also, this album had some technological breakthroughs for Rush. So I don't know. Do you know who Martin Popoff is? I don't. I don't. So he's a journalist and he has several books about Rush. I would recommend them to you and any other big Rush fans. I skimmed the parts just about this album for them, but lots of great information on the making of their albums and songs. And so... The studio that the band recorded at, La Studio, got a brand new SSL console during the making of this album. And as a result of that, this album used 48 tracks instead of the 24 used on previous albums. So as a result, we have a giant technological breakthrough on this album. And I think you can hear it all over it. Most definitely can. And it took them, and they've said this, it took them a minute because they were used to it. Uh, I'm sorry, they were used to the 24-track rather than the 48-track machine, and it took them time to get used to it. Also, on the same note, they were doing this digitally at this point, you know, and they ended up recording these or or taking uh, these recordings and putting them on tape just to to save them, you know, not replay and not diminish in their... uh, in their musical value, so to speak. Uh, But it was something that they still focused on and tried to stay in the old school. Uh, And even though it was unfamiliar to them, and unfamiliar territory, I think it turned out, like you said, you can hear it. It's awesome. Yeah, this album definitely sounds expensive, but they were experimenting with a lot of new stuff. And speaking of expensive, let's talk about the album cover for a moment. (laughs) Because I actually read this little factoid. It costs $9,500 to put together. 
And the label didn't even spring for the whole entire uh, 9,500. The band paid, I'm not sure what the actual total is, but I know the band paid the difference on that one. They did. But Hughes signed won a Juno Award for cover art because of that cover. And it's certainly a well-known Rush image to this day. Most definitely. And a perfect triple entendre. I'm stealing that straight from the Wikipedia, but I mean, it's right there in front of our face. You know, we have movers, literally moving three pictures. Uh, I believe it's the Rush Star, um, Joan of Arc being burned, and the third one isn't in there right now. I can't remember what the third one was. Long story short, it's three pictures being moved by movers. And then on top of that, you've got people on the side crying because they're being moved by the pictures. And then outside of that, you've got a film crew who is filming this, hence making a moving picture. What a what a neat triple entendre right there. Certainly. And whether people caught on to that triple entendre or not, they bought the album in droves. It reached number one in Canada, Russia's homeland number three in the U.S. and U.K. upon its February release. As you said earlier, five times platinum in the U.S. It also went four times platinum in Canada. And uh, Rush has had a rocky history with critics, I've learned, uh, over the course of researching this, but this album is a lot more respected now, and it did make Rolling Stone's 2020 list of its 500 greatest albums of all time. It was right there in the mid-300s, right? I think mid 200s actually. Oh, wow. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, they they definitely had their fair share. It's a different sound. Uh, it's a sound that if in my opinion if you're not sitting down with an open mind, I'm not trying to pigeonhole anybody's opinion, but I'm saying it's just a sound that maybe isn't for everybody right off the bat. Um but if if you sit down with an open mind, I feel like it can be it, it's there. I mean, they're they're beautiful musicians in their own right. All three Yes, I will say the musicianship on this album, these guys are virtuosos when it comes to their instruments. And the the songs are definitely all cool to listen to musically. I'll say that much for now. Uh, Speaking of virtuosos, one of the ones, well, it's hard to pick out of three, but one of the ones that pops into my mind automatically, and we're talking about the technology of this album, is Peart. And Neil actually had a pressure microphone that was strapped to him uh, during, I'm pretty sure they did it during uh, Tom Sawyer, but it was during a lot of this album. Uh, And they got some really cool sounds uh, out of that microphone as well, out of his what? I shouldn't say what. It's over a 40-piece drum kit. If anybody listening is not familiar with Peart's drum kit, it is one of the sickest, most encompassing uh drum kits i've ever seen in my life we're talking about if you put a price tag on it it's anywhere from 50 to a hundred thousand dollars and he used to change it every year later on later in 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 their in their run he used to build a new kit every single tour um i've never got to see that kit live it's one of uh one of my bucket lists that I, i'm not going to be able to ever fulfill but i've I've seen pictures, I've seen video. It's just amazing. And and that man was such an amazing drummer. It's ridiculous. It is. And it's truly sad that he's no longer with us. Most definitely. Most but definitely. Definitely 
gone but never forgotten for sure. Nah, you, you can't forget the handiwork of Mr. Neil Peart. No, you cannot. And so with that all being said, are you ready to get started with the album? I think so. I think we hit all of the backgrounds notes that I had. Um, yeah, let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. We're going into the first album I've ever heard you say that you've never listened to all the way through. So let's let's see. Let's see what's going on. You want some hot tea takes, ladies and gentlemen. Let's see what we got going on here. I'm. I'm afraid I have some. <laughs> no, hey, I'm, I, don't be afraid. I'm excited to hear your takes on this. Let's do it. So I'm going to start off by saying I think the main reason I hadn't been gravitated to this album to begin with is this. I am not a prog rock person. Heard. Just not a go-to genre for me. I have a few unpopular opinions in that regard, but we're going to keep it limited and not go too deep into that right now because they're related to other bands that aren't Rush, so we're not going to get into that. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Even going into, uh, like, you know, going through our normal, um, going through interviews and things like that, I Getty Lee had said um, that it was a jam session kind of mentality, and immediately I just heard you in my head be like, ah, jam band stuff's not really my jam. (laughs) I'm like, all right, here we go. This isn't quite jam so much as prog rock, but I think you meant more of like building it from the floor up, like inside of jams, they were picking and choosing yeah. what they were doing. No, I'll take this over fish any day. Let me <laughs> be clear. Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> but we're going to have some shots fired on my part in regards to the first song, I'm afraid, Tom Sawyer. All right. So this is obviously. Rush's signature song. This is the song most people think of when they hear of the name Rush. I've heard this song many times over the years and always thought, oh, this is a cool song to listen to. But because I was doing the deep dive into it, I also took a closer look at the lyrics and I came up feeling really confused by the lyrics. And so I looked it up and Neil Peart co-wrote the lyrics with Pai Dubois. It was based on a poem called Louis the Lawyer. But in one of Popoff's books, which was Limelight, Rush in the 80s, Pai Dubois made an admission that the song didn't make any sense. He said, I think we do the song injustice if we start to pick it apart. It doesn't make any sense. It was just two people painting a picture, wasn't it? And uh, it confirms my feelings because... I don't think this song makes any damn sense at all. I really don't. I, two people painting picture is such an awesome way to put this because this goes into the category of lyrics that that don't necessarily paint a black and white narrative, but can inspire the listener to pick and choose and feel what um, they want coming out of it. Um, from what I was reading, Peart, you know, being the the rebel that he was, had gravitated towards that Tom Sawyer uh, type mentality uh, inside of writing it, and also the Dubois, um, you know, the Louis the Warrior poem, and, and more so superimposed almost his rebellious feelings inside of this uh this character of tom sawyer it's not that i I shouldn't use the word character um because it's not a character driven narrative 
Um, but it is a uh, more of, God, I can't say it any better. There's two people painting a picture. If you imagine two people with one sort of idea going and, and painting alongside each other without speaking, it's that's where these lyrics uh, sing to me. As far as the song in its musicianship, I mean, we're looking at a basic 4-4 time signature, but like full on 16th note riding throughout. Um, we're, we're back into this rush mentality right away on the album. Um, they're not writing songs the way most people are uh, as far as the way they're putting these building blocks together. Um, and a lot of this, a lot of the instrumental section grew from what Getty Lee was just doing on his synthesizer in soundcheck um, throughout 80 uh, throughout 1980 on on tour. So this is a lot of just wild, jumbled ideas that have finally come together to produce uh, this product. And it, it, again, it wasn't a typical kind of structure, especially for them at the time, uh, where they, you know, they give you the first bridge, I'm sorry, the first verse into the bridge, into a chorus and into a solo, and then repeat it. That wasn't their style. Uh, so it's, from a Rush perspective, it's a neat, new look for them or a new feel for them. And it starts the album off with a bang. I definitely came away liking Getty Lee a lot in my research of this. I think he's my favorite member of Rush easily. Just, I like hearing him talk. I just like his vibe. He's a he's a profound dude. I agree with you there. But as for Neil Peart, his drumming is amazing. I will not take away from that. However, lyrically, I've got to have my friend Naomi explain how I feel about these lyrics. Fucking psycho babble bullshit asshole! So, here is my hot tea take of the episode. Lyrically, Neil Peart's kind of a second-rate Pete Townshend. I, I, I can see you there. I can see you there. It's another one of those... Uh... Is you know is not necessarily writing for a Pulitzer, where he is foremost writing for feeling. I would, I, in my opinion, but I, I can see you there on the Pete Townsend side, and he does a lot of their. He writes a lot of these songs too. Yeah, no, Peart's the lyricist primarily yeah. for this band, most definitely. And uh, my primary issue with this album is the lyrics. Well, and that's going to be a tough one to overcome as we go through this, because uh, there's probably only two maybe on here that have a really strong lyrical base, uh, in my opinion. So that, that'll be interesting going through here. I have more of an issue with the lyrics on Tom Sawyer than I do the other songs here, because I think this song just makes no damn sense. But that's just me. It's just kind of psychobabble to me, but... Other people interpret it differently. I think that's great for them. However, I don't like a lot of uh, gobbledygook adding up to no actual meaning, even if it sounds cool. Don't have the pretentious lyrics if they're not even going to mean anything. That's just my take on it. Still a cool song to listen to, but definitely a bit overrated, in my opinion. And the lyrics bring this one down for me. Heard that. And not to stick on the lyrics, but one quick question. And I'm just curious. They might not be 
um, set in a narrative, but do you find that they, do you find yourself singing this song? You know what I'm saying? Do you find yourself like jamming on it? I get the synth line stuck in my head a lot. Most definitely. Most definitely. For those who don't know, I do karaoke. This is not a song I think I'm going to do this at karaoke. That, there's a different song on this album I would like to try out at karaoke. Woo, I want to hear that. All right. But All right. it's not this one. <laughs> All right. Well, that being said, Tom Sawyer. All over. <laughs> yeah. Just an overrated song, in my opinion. Not a bad one by any stretch of the imagination. Just not my favorite. Fortunately, I do like the next song more, Red Barchetta. This one is based on a 1973 sci-fi story called A Nice Morning Drive by Richard M. Foster. Cars are outlawed in this story, and they are in this song, too. These lyrics are super sci-fi. I actually kind of really like this song. I think it moves along very nicely, even though it is about six minutes long. It does move along quite nicely, and I can just picture it as a mini movie in my head. It, it's definitely a mini movie. Um, it even in a in a reminiscence of uh, of Bonham's Moby Dick, um, mimicking the engine of of the of the car. I feel the same way with Peart's uh, drums in this. And it's it's exactly like you said, a, a beautiful story you can just listen to. You're along for this wild outlandish uh, run from, from these hover cars, <laughs> so to speak. And on top of that, a six-minute song, but this one was done in one take. Uh, and it's so, so spot on, so spot on. I like that there are less simps on this song than there are on Tom Sawyer. It just allows the band to rock out. And uh, this one's a winner for me. I like Red Barchetta. This is, a, this is a cool one. I like it in the number two spot. This was one of the singles off the album, correct? It was not, but... It wasn't? Oh, wow. I always thought this was one of the singles. Okay. It was not. Tom Sawyer was. I forgot to mention that. It made it to 44 in the U.S., but obviously... Charting didn't really matter too much for Rush. They actually only ever had one top 40 hit, but they weren't a top 40 band, really. That wasn't what they were going for. Can't always measure success by the top 40. Rush is an example of that. Most definitely. Red Barchetta did remain a live favorite, though, and it is a classic rock radio staple as well. So it's not an unknown song at all, even though it was not a single. They probably thought it was a bit long for radio play to be released as a single. That that's would true. be my guess. Yeah, that's true. Six minutes. I think it's 602 is a, it's a total run on it. That's true. Yeah. But yes, Red Barchetta, we like it. We like it. Next one is a, a song we mentioned a bit earlier, YYZ. I've also heard it pronounced YYZ. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to make it a point to say it myself. There's there's guys out there that you talk to in like hardcore musician circles and whatnot. And you say YYZ and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's YYZ. And it, I de- dove in to see if I could really find that in the hard print here. And I can't. But it's definitely something that lives out there in the uh, 
in the following of Rush where guys would be like, no, 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 it's YYZ. Like, all right, bud. <laughs> yeah. I've learned Rush has a very devoted following. Their fan base has been called the Trekkies of Rock, which makes perfect sense because this is nerd music. I mean that in the best <laughs> way possible. I thought, of course you'd like this album. You know it. You know it. The, uh, the YYZ, I think, comes from, well, one, it being named after the um, airport code for Toronto Pearson International Airport. Um, and then two, the rhythm. Uh, I just chopped that up. But anyway, that rhythm is actually, I never knew this. And I'm so, it, it's such a mind-blowing jam to dive in and, and see this stuff. But it's actually the rhythm of the Morse code of YYZ, uh, which I thought was was amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool that they made a whole piece out of this. And this is a really cool piece to listen to. I'm sure it killed in their concerts whenever they did it. Most definitely. This was one where they had such a great time doing La Via uh, Strangiato. Two albums back. Yeah, that was Hemispheres uh, in 78. And that was like a nine minute instrumental only broken up into 10 different or I shouldn't say 10 because I think it was like 12, but broken up into different pieces. And they had such a great time doing it that they wanted to do it in a tighter, shorter package uh, for this album. So they were they were already having fun. Um, I think it was Peart that said, and it's always awesome when we pick up our luggage when we're coming home and YYZ is on the luggage tag, which I thought was pretty cool too. <laughs> yeah. So YYZ, another winner from the album. And uh, now we're going to end off side one with Limelight, a song about the demands of fame. Another one of Rush's most well-known songs. This is a straight ahead rock song. This is the one I want to try out at karaoke. This is the one that gets stuck in my head that I sing along to. It definitely has Peart's lyrical sensibilities, for better or for worse, but it is about a topic that was real to him, which was how he felt about fame. He had mixed feelings about it. Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, he was dissatisfied. He had feelings. He was dissatisfied uh with the fame and he also didn't really enjoy the intrusion you know uh in the limelight uh, it, it is definitely an autobiographical uh take for him and it, it's one of their like you said it's one of their ones that has gone it's i'd say it's number three you could put to the everyman and they'd be like oh that's rush yeah this is definitely one of their most well-known songs and I think it's one of their best, too. I would say, spoiler alert, I would say, spoiler alert, I usually save this for the end. This is my favorite on the album. I really enjoy this one. I bet. I thought it was pretty interesting in contrast to our previous album, which was Tom Petty, who was more of an everyman artist. This is not an everyman song, even though it's a song many people know. It's specific to what this band was going through at the time, but that makes it feel more real. And it also helps that it's a really catchy tune as well. So Limelight's a winner in my book. It definitely is a catchy tune. This is one where we find two self-references inside the song. Um, the first one is 
all the world's a stage and we're merely players, um, which references their 1976 album, All the World's a Stage, and of course is taken from Shakespeare. And the other one was, uh, what was it? Living in the fisheye lens, caught in the camera eye, um, actually moves right on to side B. Um, so two self-references inside of an autobiographical uh, song um, by Peart there. Yes, and as you said, The Camera Eye is the first song on Side B, and this is Rush's final song that was over 10 minutes long. They were quite well known for having long songs on their previous albums, and uh, this one is split into two parts, New York and London. I will say I don't get the vibe of either of these cities listening to this song at all. Now, I tried to really, because I, I believe it was Peart, but I'm almost, it was either Peart or Lifeson that said, no, it was Peart. He said that he made this song with rhythms and thought processes from each city. Uh, I feel like, so New York, for anybody who isn't familiar, is the first five minutes and 58 seconds of this song. Um, and there are periods in the New York where it gets almost overwhelming. Um, I won't say a mishmash, but very, very loud and 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 like I said, almost overwhelming. So I I can see how that has that New York aspect. The London five minutes, the last London five minutes for me, it it shares a common um a common thought, a common musical thought as as the first five minutes and fifty eight as New York, but it doesn't necessarily. Again, I've never experienced London myself uh, standing in it, so I don't have anything necessarily to reference personally, but it doesn't feel like it changes um, to my thought of London. De- definitely definitely a long one. Um, I always thought YYZ was longer than this. It's it's crazy when I finally saw the runtime. Maybe it's just because YYZ gets so hard to play on Guitar Hero 2. <laughs> it felt like forever. Um, but I always thought that YYZ was longer than this. Still an awesome... I mean, we'll, we'll say it over and over again. They're, they're crazy virtuosos, you know? Can't yeah. go wrong. This song didn't feel like it was almost 11 minutes, which I will give to its credit. I still think it's too long, but I liked it all right. Lyrically, it made no impression on me. Still a still a cool song to listen to. Just uh, this is probably my least favorite on the album, partially because of the length. And also it just didn't make as lasting of an impression for me. Agreed. Agreed. It, the tiny little bits of lyrics that you do get, in my opinion, aren't necessarily ones that you remember. They're just there. Yeah. They're going to burn us at the stake after this one. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. These lyrics are memorable on the other hand. Witch hunt. Oh, yeah. So this song is about people being witch hunted for their beliefs. I love the mob intro that this song begins with. And uh, when I first heard this song, it actually reminded me of the Charlottesville incident of 2017. How so? Because of the mob mentality of it, because 
I just thought of people in white hoods walking around for some reason. I don't know why. And those are beliefs that we don't condone here, obviously. No, no, no. It just shows that this is still a relevant song. We live in an age of witch hunts, I think, still today, especially over these past five years, because the political climate in this country has been so fraught since 2017. This song really kind of hit me there. It's not the best exploration of this topic that I've ever heard, but it's still an exploration of it, which I appreciate. And I like that it's not too overly angry. This could have easily gotten too preachy or angry. It didn't, which I do appreciate. It it definitely didn't get too over. Uh, It could also, you know, evoke the thoughts of a Salem witch uh, hunt or even, you know, just a a hypothetical. Um, It's inside of a four-part series um, that spans the band's entirety um, called the Fear Series. Um, and off the top of my head, I can't remember the other three songs, but it's definitely a set piece inside of these four. Yeah. And I also read that this was the most rewritten song on the album. And that while it was being recorded, because we're in 81, John Lennon was murdered during it. And I think part of their reaction to that is captured in the mob chanting. I believe. Wow. That that's awesome. I, I not awesome, but you know, something that I had never even thought of. Um, a lot of the audio from the initial mob chanting, what I think I read was like people outside in the harsh Quebec winter when they were recording it. Um, and also the synthesizer part on this. I'm I'm going out on a limb and, and trusting my memory here, which is not necessarily always served me the best, but I'm almost positive that the main synthesizer riff on this was written by the gentleman who did the cover art. I think uh, you're right. I think I got, you're I right. Remember. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to look back. Here we go. I'm going on memory. Hit me in the comments if I'm wrong, and I'll give you a thumbs up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, overall, I like Witch Hunt. It kind of gives me some chills, actually, but I enjoy it. And uh, now we're at the final song on the album, Vital Signs. This is a unique track. It has some reggae electronic influences. As soon as I heard it, the first band that came to my mind was The Police. This sounds like The Police, but I think that's a good thing. I like The Police. They were on fire at this point. They were indeed, and it's that reggae influence um, that we'll see through the rest of Russia's career. But this is the first time they really explore it uh, on wax. And it's, you know, I'm tough on number sevens, and you know, I'm tough on on final tracks for the album. Even with a trail off on this tight, you know, again, we're we're on that super tight, super rhythmic, um, poppy, progressive rock feeling uh even with a trail off at the end of the song i think it fits as a number seven i was trying to figure out ways that i i like to challenge myself sometimes and think of ways that i could add to the album by switching the tracks around and it was really tough to do it on this one at first i thought why not finish this off with yyz with the but 
Now nah, this one fits a great ending to this, uh, to this tight album. Yeah, I agree. This is a tight album. It isn't quite my cup of tea a hundred percent, but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this just isn't a go-to genre for me at all. Prog rock. It's just not what I go for. I find it all a little pretentious and there is some of that on this album, even though I will take this over like Pink Floyd, for instance, I'll definitely take this over. Not even a contest for me there. <laughs> I think, and you know what, again, I'm going on memory, but I think it came in number three, uh, 2012 Rolling Stones prog rock albums. And I think it came in behind Pink Floyd, which was surprising to me. But then again, don't trust my memory. It could be the other way around. It might have beat Pink Floyd out for a number two spot, and Pink Floyd got number three. I'd be surprised if Pink Floyd wasn't one or two because they're very critically regarded highly. They're just not my cup of tea at all. I think they're highly overrated. There's a hot tea take for you. Pink Floyd is overrated. Come at me. I know you disagree with me on that one. Ah, man, you know I do. But uh, this is why we do it. This is this is the whole reason we, you and I, came together and said let's let's cut some albums. You know, let's go through some albums. Let's go through stuff you're not going to listen to necessarily. Let's go through stuff I'm not going to listen to necessarily. And all it does is make us better uh listeners in the long run you know it opens our minds to paths musical paths that we would never see ourselves going down and then we get to shoot the shit and spill the tea on all of it you know definitely i think i know what grade you're gonna give this album Ooh, do you uh yeah i'm coming in at an a minus with uh without getting burned at the stake even though it's my top 10 um, I like to go at, like I said before, I grade these albums to start with musicianship, but then I also like to take these albums without any nostalgia, without any, uh, like I'm a first time listener. And I think coming off this, I don't think I can give it above an A minus, uh, musicianship speaks volumes but there are some points inside of this as a first time listener or maybe even a second time listener where you might get lost in the beautiful and maniacal thoughts of rush i thought you were going to say a plus because it was in your top 10 no i'm I'm highly critical of my top 10 (laughs) (laughs) i'm not i'm super biased i'm going to give this one a b like i said really respect the musicianship Definitely have some new respect for this band. I will say that I'm definitely most interested in digging into the stuff they recorded after this. That's more synth and reggae based following vital signs, especially if it's more compact and radio friendly. That is more for me. Lyrically, it's just not quite my jam. Like I said, I think it's kind of second rate Pete Townshend, but that. Again, that's a high level to go from is Pete, Mr. Pete. He is a genius. He's still with us, fortunately. I don't know why I almost said was. I saw him live a month ago. He's awesome. That he is. That he is. He's awesome and hilarious and just a treasure. We have to protect Pete Townshend. He's amazing. (laughs) I love it. I love it. 
We're not talking about the who here. I know we're talking about Rush. So yeah, this one's a B for me. And my favorite track is Limelight. What's what's yours? I'm going YYZ. I've always had a love for the uh, every little piece in YYZ. Uh, Being a bass player, it was always something that I struggled and and challenged myself to even come close to being able to play. Um, In fact, I played a Getty Lee Fender Precision for a long, long time of when I played bass. And uh, this album was the first time Getty Lee used the Fender Jazz Precision. Um, I believe it was on Sawyer. But again, we're going memory. But yeah, this album was the first. And that would become a mainstay in his uh, in his studio stuff, like 91 and forward. Like I said, I love Getty Lee. I just think he's cool as hell. And I would love to just have a beer with him and chat with him. He seems just like a really cool dude. And even though he's clearly worldly, I don't think he's really pretentious, which I think is important. No, you used the word pretentious earlier, not for him. And I almost said, well, you know, Getty Lee is is sort of pretentious, but he's not. He's just... Uh, He's just well-spoken. He, he knows what he wants. He is the epitome of a musical genius. And it comes through in his personality, in my opinion. I agree. He was my favorite part of watching definitely the Rush Beyond the Lighted stage documentary that I watched to familiarize myself with the band. And he was the one I came out liking the most. Yeah, he's definitely a cool dude. And... Uh, Another thing I forgot to mention earlier, one of the reasons I avoided Rush for so long was because I think the first time I heard them, Getty Lee's voice turned me off big time. But now I've gotten used to hearing it over time, so I can't really say anything. It's an acquired taste. It, it definitely is. It def- I think I'd go out on a limb and say about 90% of the people who have ever really listened to Rush would say the same thing. When you first hear Getty Lee, you're like, I'm not sure who that is. I don't even know who is singing that. Yeah. Yep. But I don't even really remember the first time I heard Rush because they have New World Man is on a CD I got when I was 10, but it's not one of the songs I remember sticking out to me. Many others did, but not New World Man for some reason. Rush is is always just living there inside your head. You never remember your first Rush. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Good to know, because it had to have been when I was 10, but I don't remember it. So, all righty. Well, that wraps it up for our moving pictures. This was a good one to dive into. If you didn't see, listeners, we did polls. We may want to streamline it a bit more in the future. I did polls through Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify. We might want to bring it down to just one in the future. For this one, I averaged it all out we had four albums from 1981 our options were prince's controversy rick james's street songs the go-go's beauty and the beat and uh, fair warning by van halen and uh, averaged out beauty and the beat by the go-go's one all right so next week we're going outside of my comfort zone and listening to an album that i don't I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't think I've ever listened to this album all the way through. So, Yeah, I, I'm coming in knowing half of that. I heard that. But this is a really important album in history. We're going to get into that. And cool. uh, 
I, yeah, I enjoy the Go-Go's. It's going to be a fun one to dive into, but I have a confession to make. When I made the poll, I accidentally wrote the album down as Beauty and A Beat, not Beauty <laughs> and The Beat. And I feel especially guilty of that because Beauty and A Beat is a, the name of a Justin Bieber and Nicki Minaj song. <laughs> And uh, I don't want to put them with the Go-Go's because they're better than that. So <laughs> my apologies to the Go-Go's. Uh, and also, going to say it right now, Nicki Minaj will not be covered on this podcast. I hope that's okay with you. Uh, it's totally not, but we're going to have to talk about it off air. <laughs> I'm fine with you. I just hope the Go-Go's can forgive you on this one. I, I really hope so, too. I don't want to be in Belinda Carlisle's bad graces. <laughs> I really don't, because I love her and her voice. But I'm looking forward to diving into Beauty and the Beat. And until then, we will see you all next time. Adios. Peace.